Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I head development at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. This podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF and the broad economics of innovation, specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And today I'm going to invoke another historian, Santayana, who said, those who, who forget history are condemned to repeat it. I, th- I think it's close enough. Uh, and today we're going to talk about history, and particularly the history of how the automobile industry of U.S. leadership build over to other countries in the 30s and 40s, in particular to the Soviets and the Nazis. You can say, well, why are we talking about that? Because there are so many parallels around what's happening today with countries competing for advanced industries, tech transfer all around the world. So I'm really, really excited about our guest today. Our guest is Stefan Link, Associate Professor of History at Dartmouth University and author of the book, Forging Global Fordism, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, and the Contest Over the Industrial Order. The book explores how 20th century industries took shape as activist states confronted America, competed over industrial development, and clashed over the terms of globalization. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad to be on. Rob is very excited. We have a lot to cover. He loved your book. (laughs) So everybody knows I'm a I'm a wonk, but I got to tell you, this is a really, really, really good book. It, it's super interesting. You learn so much. You know, Stefan has just done such a masterful job of really helping me understand what was going on in the 30s from a global economic, political challenges, but in particular with mass production technology and how we unwittingly helped both the Soviets and the Nazis uh, to modernize and that's such an important issue because we're going to talk about, because we're always talking about China and tech transfer. So really looking forward to this interview. Well, so let's start there. Tell us more about your book. Maybe Rob could do this, but we should ask you to do it <laughs> and and why you wrote it. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, I came to it through uh, historian's instinct, uh, the connections between the Ford Motor Company and Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, uh, you know, are known to historians. But what I found looking into this was uh, essentially just under research. There was a bigger story there that required reconstruction, especially setting this on the background of uh, the 1930s coming out of the Depression. So that's how I got to writing about it. And uh, it was a great experience. It involved archival research in Detroit, obviously, uh, in the Ford Motor Company archives, uh, notably in uh, Germany, in federal archives and the Volkswagen archives, and in Russia, uh, in uh, well, the, the, the state archives, but also the archives of, well, that mass production plant that was a result of the Soviet Ford cooperation of uh, the 1930s, uh, which is in uh, Nizhny Novgorod, uh, Gaz, Gavsky Automobilny Zavod, still around today. And that was the fruit of this collaboration. I had uh, the privilege to work in their archives. So, Stefan, one of the things I thought was really interesting there, particularly in the world we live in now, where companies take trade secrets and intellectual property protection very seriously, there was a just this massive, it, it, it was like Detroit became Woodstock. Uh, everybody came there. You mentioned it wasn't just the Germans and the Russians, but the Japanese auto technicians and executives, the Italians came. You, you noted they took pictures, they took detailed notes. I was even surprised to hear you talked about the Soviets who set up a commission at Ford Motor Company, spent six years there in the 1930s. 
He also writes that Ford stopped enforcing his patents and began offering blueprints to interested parties. This is similar to what we would call today open source. What's going on there? Why was Ford so open? And was Ford really the only one that was sharing knowledge like that? Yeah, uh, that was one of the uh, surprising surprising finds of the story I was uh, able to reconstruct there. It's an interesting kind of unlikely historical uh, conjunction. So, uh, you know, the book is about precisely what you said. It is about how uh, engineering delegations from around the world, I focus on uh, Soviet, Soviets and Germans in the 1930s, but uh, there were also delegations from Italy and Japan came to uh, Detroit, came to the burgeoning American automobile industry and uh, the big three, uh, General Motors, Chrysler, and Ford, and wanted to, well, learn the secret of automotive mass production for uh, two uh, reasons, really. Well, first of all, it was the lead sector of the civilian economy uh, at the time. But in the 1930s, it was also clear that this is a kind of dual-use technology that would be necessary to, uh, well, equip uh, mid-20th century armies with uh, the kind of material that they need to wage large-scale wars. So all this stuff, uh, tanks and airplanes, uh, would have to be produced on assembly lines. So there's a clear uh, military and civilian incentive behind uh, these attempts at technology transfer. And now you might ask, how is it possible that the automobile industry, the big three, allowed this to happen or were so remarkably open? And uh, in the In the example of the Ford Motor Company, this goes back to the origin of where the Ford Motor Company uh, came from. Uh, It came from, and this is not as well known or understood as I think it should be, it came out of uh, a particular political tradition of the American Midwest, uh, which is uh, this producer populism. Uh, And producer populism, you know, late 19th century, this was essentially uh, Ford's milieu. Uh, Recall that when he founded the Ford Motor Company in 1903, he was already 40 years old. So this is the stuff, late 19th century populism that he uh, imbibed. And one of uh, the tenets of populism was a kind of view of technology as open source, as a common repertoire of human uh, ingenuity. Especially in the automobile industry, this is uh, remarkable and interesting and understandable because the Americans were actually copycat adopters of the technology of uh, the combustion engine and uh, the first automobiles, as you all know, was developed in France and in Germany and was transmitted to the United States through, uh, well, these trade journals. So there are great stories of Henry Ford uh, around, you know, in the 1890s, reading the Scientific American and using uh, using articles from the Scientific American uh, as a basis for him tinkering with his first engine in his shed, if you want. So uh, Ford held uh, a deep conviction about uh, the open source uh, nature of uh, technology, and this was reinforced by a couple of uh, episodes in the early 20th century as patent holders, uh, you know, the, the so-called Selden patent is, uh, uh, turned out to be a specious patent uh, over the very technology of uh, the gasoline engine, tried to force Ford out of business. And he did not obviously take kindly to that. Uh, that went through a round of litigation, was uh, eventually decided in Ford's favor. And in response, Ford said, we're going to make all our technological advances open source. He didn't use those words. These are, you know, this is our uh, our terminology, but uh, essentially a strong stance against patent law. How did this work in practice? The Ford Motor Company did take patents out on all in-house innovations, but essentially declined to enforce them and, uh, you know, furnished a technical information to, to all comers. General Motors and Chrysler weren't quite as open, but there was a general culture 
of, uh, of technology sharing, which also reflects, I think, the confidence of the American automobile industry in this period, the 20s and 1930s, that they were absolutely leading, that they could give to international learners, uh, pupils, what they desired to learn. You know, the idea that they would grow up to compete with uh, the American automobile industry seemed very distant. A third factor is that in the 1920s and 30s, the United States government itself was not yet concerned that this kind of stuff, technology transfer uh, of you know, cutting-edge mass production technology, might um, constitute a national security threat. Kind of national security thinking about technology transfer is a result of the 1940s. That's the turning point of the World War II and then obviously the incipient uh, Cold War, which is you don't have uh, Washington you know, raising an eyebrow about this at all in the 1930s, that you have a Soviet delegation, which is, well, they're essentially for six years, uh, sets up shop at the Ford Motor Company in 29. Uh, they arrive and have a revolving roster of engineers cycling through the, through the factory. And they are, you know, they're not only there to observe, really the, the Ford Motor Company engineers help them uh, explicitly to, uh, to transfer all this technology and keep them up to date in transferring this technology back to central Russia. And so this goes on from 1929 to 35. And Washington is completely unconcerned uh, with, with these kinds of uh, transfers. Also with you know, German engineers arriving in these factories a little bit later, uh, 1935, 1937, 1938. It only becomes an issue actually with Japan, the so-called moral embargo, which is not yet you know, a kind of legal uh, enforcement mechanism, but uh, at first a gentleman's agreement that American firms should maybe rethink some of their dealings with Japan. This is uh, 1939. It's only with the outbreak of hostilities in uh, Europe and the coming of war that there is a major revision. Uh, this obviously is the origins of the national security state, uh, the modern American national security state that uh, we uh, still live with today. That is fascinating. And one of the points you make in the book is that the this sort of American Midwestern populist tradition, you know, it led to that, but it really also led to the U.S. being the leader because they saw cars as mass production, whereas the Europeans and certainly a lot of other firms on the East Coast, in fact, my, my wife's great-grandfather was the founder of the Franklin Automobile Company, which was an air-cooled and it went out of business in the depression, but it was really, you know, it was selling to the upper class, the upper middle class. And uh, just did, that, that didn't work as a strategy, whereas the Midwesterners were the populist and sold everybody. So that strategy really worked from a technology and market perspective. It just didn't work in the last after 40 years of tech transfer. Uh, that's that's ab uh, absolutely true. It's easy to forget that when automobiles first started, they were uh, a plaything for the rich, uh, you know, regarded pretty much in the same way, you know, maybe uh, as an as an analogy, the way we think about private jets today, uh, something that is very exclusive. And, uh, you know, it's also easy to forget and often forgotten that the first uh, automobiles, you know, built on the East Coast by these, uh, if you want, boutique producers uh, for, for uh, you know, the upper echelons of the American uh, income uh, stratification, that those were electric vehicles. And uh, it was one of the innovations of these Midwestern firms uh, to insist on the gasoline uh, engine. Uh, and, you know, from the perspective of the East, a kind of genteel perspective, these noisy and smelly engines uh, were actually, uh, you know, uh, unfit 
for uh, the kind of uh, upper niche markets that they envision. Turns out, of course, that uh, mass demand trumps these kind of niche markets in terms of industrial and economic growth uh, anytime. So yes, uh, there was a kind of, this This was an, an insight coming out of also, also the populist tradition that uh, technology should be put to use, this is Ford, uh, should be put to use uh, for essentially the common people, the commoners. And it had a very explicit kind of, again, populist anti-elite thrust uh, and uh, the Ford Motor, Motor Company made it work. And this led to, to the industrial leadership in that uh, crucial early 20th century um, uh, sector, the automobile industry that the United States had over, well, really the rest of the world at that point. Do you have a sense of why the FDR administration appeared to be so passive on this? It didn't either notice or didn't care that American companies were transferring technology to potential adversaries? Well, uh, again, uh, I, I again, I think this is only to be explained by the fact that there was a sense that American corporations had absolute technological leadership in this, and that it, it took a long time until this got institutionalized in Washington. That this that this is a dual use technology that could be a security threat. If you want to, uh, by the way, I, I'm just. Uh, I, I just read about this, a brand new book by um, Maria Daniels and John Kriege on knowledge regulation and national security in post-war America. One wonderful book, which uh, is on the history of precisely these technological export controls. So uh, the origins of the national security state when it comes to thinking about trying to deny technology uh, to competitors And uh, they date the origins of the modern export control system. So, you know, actually the state, the government, uh, worrying about technology transfer abroad to World War I. And this essentially lapsed in the 1920s under the Republican administration of the 1920s, very much along uh, along the lines of all sorts of World War I precedents that would then get rediscovered in the New Deal and in uh, in, uh, World War II, uh, lapsing in the 1920s. And I think this kind of... um, oversight of te- over technological exports uh, was part of that. Uh, great book. Uh, and by the way, you should really get these guys on uh, your podcast. I think there will be a, a lot there uh, to, ex- to explore. Yeah. I mean, the other point to that is we forget just how small the federal government apparatus was in the 30s. It was really tiny compared to what we have now. So you're like, who would do that really? Um, I want to come back to this issue about tech transfer one of the really fascinating things you wrote was that when trade started to shrink uh, and foreign investment started to shrink, other nations turned to tech transfer. That that seemed to be the way they wanted. Nobody wanted to be dependent. All, all these. It, it reminds me a little bit about how, in the last fifteen years, countries are looking at ICT or information communications technology. Nobody wants to be dependent anymore. The Europeans have this whole. Th- thing, which I think is frankly bogus, but they do it called digital sovereignty. Uh, it, it's kind of back then people wanted metal mass production sovereignty. And so they curbed imports of U.S. cars. They instead encouraged ec- imports of U.S. technology. So they didn't want to import our cars. They wanted to import our technology. You noted that Ford was willing to do that with Russia. They provided them technical assistance, I think probably to that plant you alluded to, but GM was less willing to do that. Any sense on sort of why GM and Ford differed with the strategies? 
Um, I think there are two reasons. So one is GM really in that period is a very different outfit uh, from the Ford Motor Company. So the Ford Motor Company, still Henry Ford is still around, very much a creation of uh, the founder, committed to, well, some of these uh, ideas about technology being open source, cars for commoners. General Motors is really a creation of East Coast finance. DuPont partnering with J.P. Morgan, uh, pulling together this, uh, this collection of car makers in uh, Michigan, calling it General Motors. And so there was a much bigger sense of, you know, profitability issues. You want to sell technology, not necessarily share it, Um, but also a greater distrust of, well, you know, these hard scrabble communists showing up at uh, your door. You know, what do they want uh, with with your uh, technology? The way I was able to reconstruct this is simply actually from the Soviet side, who found the Ford Motor Company simply just way more forthcoming. Um, there's one very interesting line in the discussions. This is the late 1920s, where the, the Soviets, you know, want to build a modern automobile industry, and uh, Ford is, uh, you know, a kind of world uh, world star, international star at, at this point. So they turn to the Ford Motor Company, but they they would they would have turned to General Motors just as well, but they found General Motors less forthcoming. They said a very interesting quote at one point saying, General Motors does not want to help us develop our own indigenous mass production uh, capability. They want to sell us essentially, you know, outdated technology or just not not the frontier technology, but the, but, but the one that is just uh, becoming obsolete. And that's not good enough. And then, uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, uh, in the Ford Motor Company, the Soviets found, well, you know, a corporation willing to not only open the doors to these delegations, but actively help them transfer this stuff. This, again, can only be understood if we take into consideration this view on technology, I think, that uh, was institutionally built into the institutional culture of the of the Ford Motor Company. And so, and in that respect, the Ford Motor Company was actually special for the entirety of the Soviet tech transfer effort of the first five-year plan and the 1930s. Uh, so I came across multiple references to that saying, if only all American corporations were as cooperative, willing, and open as the Ford Motor Company. So it was a spectrum. The Soviets did not uh, you know, walk through open doors everywhere. The Ford Motor Company was particularly forthcoming. But at the same time, American corporations were remarkably open by uh, you know, standards today or then, of course, by, by Cold War standards. Partially, this also had to do with the situation of the Depression. Uh, you know, these are metalworking industries battered hard by the Depression, uh, looking for business wherever they could. And dealing with the Soviets who were willing to put state funds behind industrial buildup in the very period that, uh, that America was going through the Depression, uh, you know, dealing with the Soviets uh, seemed like a promising avenue uh, in, in that regard. You quote Stalin saying Soviets wanted to develop to reach the point where metal and machines are in our hands and we are not dependent on the capitalist economy. This is very close to what we're hearing from Chinese leadership now. Do you agree with that parallel? I think it is an absolutely clear uh, parallel. And uh, so one of the one of the things that I was able to do in the book is try and set this story. You know, it's an interesting story in its uh, in its own right. Obviously, the Soviets and the Nazis dealing with uh, with uh, Midwestern American uh, corporations, but putting this history in the context of essentially state led, state orchestrated catch up efforts. Uh, which 
have to rely necessarily on technology transfers from technological leaders. Uh, and you realize this stuff is everywhere. You know, you could even go back to the founding of the United States, where it was the other way around. This, this is well known. The British weren't particularly willing to share cotton textile manufacturing technology with the United States. They were, uh, in fact, quite stingy about it. Uh, nevertheless, through a concerted effort at industrial espionage, uh, some of this stuff ended up in America. By the time we're looking at, uh, at the early 20th century, obviously, the tables have turned. The Americans are technological leaders, at least in the automobile industry. A lot of other stuff, actually, this, this really uh, only kicks in in the 1940s. And other states want to try and get their hands on this stuff, American technology. And how do you do this? Well, you can try and buy uh, licenses. You can buy and try uh, machines. Technology transfer is very difficult. You might deal with corporations that, again, just like General Motors, aren't exactly willing to share um, you know, cutting-edge technology uh, for, for obvious reasons. But you might also uh, deal with a state that says, we're not going to let this technology flow, flow freely abroad. Again, this might be the example of the British in the early 19th century, or it might be uh, the example of the Americans uh, since uh, 1945, which uh, you know, pay close attention to what kinds of technologies flow to uh, which international uh, competitors. And so what you need, and states rediscover this in their own way over and over again in these economic catch-up efforts, is essentially the goal is always how do you build up a homegrown indigenous innovation capacity. And you want to be able to make this stuff by yourself, not only for import substitution reasons and to be on par with the technological leader, but to put yourself in a position to, in, uh, to innovate indigenously, you know, carve out, uh, carve out new paths. And there you run against limits of, uh, well, trade, uh, you know, very, very interesting. Uh, I think you had Barry Norton on your on your podcast, uh, who identifies a, a kind of turning point in uh, 2006, seven, eight, uh, in uh, the Chinese policy towards you know what's our what's our growth strategy from a kind of labor intensive, export oriented but low tech, uh, low tech industrialization towards trying to build precisely this homegrown innovation capacity, and there you discover that. You know, the mechanisms that, there you discover that technology transfer is incredibly difficult to achieve, the kind of mechanism that the Chinese tried. So, you know, you can buy this stuff, you can buy a machine, you can buy licenses, you can do FDI, you can invite in Western corporations, but turns out uh, that they're not necessarily willing to, um, you know, train your personnel to the extent that the Chinese side wants or, you know, share transfer production protocols, uh, product innovations, process innovations. So what do you do? You turn to all the other, uh, the other uh, artifacts, uh, all, all the other uh, tactics you might have in the book, uh, including uh, you know, targeted industrial espionage. And uh, you know, this, is, this is how we end up uh, where, where we are today. Stefan, this is really, really fantastic. We could go on for a long time, but I'm going to ask you one last question, and that's on the last page of the book, and by the way, the book is only 217 pages, so it's an easy read. Uh, I encourage everybody to buy it on Amazon or wherever. Anyway, the quote is, quote, tense and ambivalent global connections are baked into the very logic of development competition. Late developers have no choice to turn for technology and capital to those they seek to emulate and challenge. Histories of globalization would do well to imbibe this lesson lest they continue to mistake as flows 
what have in fact been constantly contested claims on technology, capital, goods, and information within a shifting political architecture of geoeconomic relations. And I read that quote because I think it is so emblematic of what U.S. policymakers are finally beginning to learn. Uh, the U.S. elite class has been living in this, to me, fantasy world that is all free flows when actually some of it is, but a lot of it is contestability. Any closing thoughts on that? Well, from a historical perspective, it's just abundantly clear that what is, in fact, you know, the outlier or the exception is these dedicated attempts to build uh, multilateral uh, institutions and uh, you know, build the global economic order on on uh, these multilateral institutions, which, you know, if you were to take a, a realist view on this, were always uh, institutional solutions in which the Americans would, you know, call the shots, which, uh, you know, worked as long as American ascendancy was unquestioned uh, in the mid to late uh, 20th century. Uh, but the rediscovery that you have geo geopolitics built into this system is one that then periodically breaks through. And this already happens in the United States in the 1980s, when the big competitor was all of a sudden Japan, semiconductors, uh, automobiles, uh, American corporations being uh, outcompeted. Uh, out and then I think the Soviet collapse led to this period in the 1990s and early 2000s of a kind of uh, Panglossian, very, very blue-eyed, if you want, uh, view of uh, of uh, international uh, of international markets from a historical perspective. Again, uh, this seems like uh, the outlier, and the return of geopolitics is in that uh, in that sense. If you take the long view of this uh, of this stuff, uh, not surprising. This was great. Thank you so much, Stefan. Really, really enjoyed it. Again, encourage everybody to pick up a copy of the book. It's a fascinating read. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in. 